Chapter fourteen of British Highways and Byways from a Motor Car by Thomas Dowler Murphy. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Christine Blashford. Chapter fourteen Peterborough, Fotheringhay, etc. The hundred miles of road that we followed from Norwich to Peterborough has hardly the suggestion of a hill, though some of it is not up to the usual English standard. We paused midway at Dereham, whose remarkable old church is the only one we saw in England that had the bell tower built separate from the main structure, though this same plan is followed in Chichester Cathedral. In Dereham Church is the grave of Cowper, who spent his last years in the town. The entire end of the nave is occupied by an elaborate memorial window of stained glass, depicting scenes and incidents of the poet's life and works. To the rear of the church is the open tomb of one of the Saxon princesses, and near it is a tablet reciting how this grave had been desecrated by the monks of Eli, who stole the relics and conveyed them to Eli Cathedral. Numerous miracles were claimed to have been wrought by the relics of the princess, who was famed for her piety. The supposed value of these relics was the cause of the night raid on the tomb, a practice not uncommon in the days of monkish supremacy. The bones of saint or martyr had to be guarded with pious care, or they were likely to be stolen by the enterprising churchmen of some rival establishment. Shortly afterwards it would transpire that miracles were being successfully performed by the relics in the hands of the new possessors. Leaving the main road, a detour of a few miles enabled us to visit Crowland Abbey, shortly before reaching Peterborough. It is a remarkable ruin, rising out of the flat fen country, as someone has said, like a lighthouse out of the sea. Its oddly shaped tower is visible for miles, and one wide arch of the nave still stands, so light and airy in its gracefulness that it seems hardly possible it is built of heavy blocks of stone. A portion of the church has been restored and is used for services, but a vast deal of work was necessary to arrest the settling of the heavy walls on their insecure foundations. The cost of the restoration must have been very great, and the people of Crowland must have something of the spirit of the old abbey builders themselves to have financed and carried out such a work." Visitors to the church are given an opportunity to contribute to the fund, a common thing in such cases. Crowland is a grey, lonely little town in the midst of the wide fen country. The streets were literally thronged with children of all ages, no sign of race suicide in this bit of Lincolnshire. Everywhere is evidence of antiquity, there is much far older than the old abbey in Crowland. The most notable of all is the queer three-way arched stone bridge in the centre of the village, a remarkable relic of Saxon times. It seems sturdy and solid despite the thousand or more years that have passed over it, and is justly counted one of the most curious antiques in the kingdom. It was late when we left Crowland, and before we had replaced a tyre casing that, as usual, collapsed at an inopportune moment, the long English twilight had come to an end. The road to Peterborough, however, is level and straight as an arrow. The right-of-way was clear, and all conditions gave our car opportunity to do its utmost. It was about ten o'clock when we reached the excellent station hotel in Peterborough. Before the advent of the railroad, Peterborough, like Wells, was merely an ecclesiastical town, with little excuse for existence save its cathedral. In the last fifty years, however, the population has increased fivefold, and it has become quite an important trading and manufacturing centre. It is situated in the midst of the richest farm country in England, and its annual wool and cattle markets are known throughout the kingdom. The town dates from the year 870, when the first cathedral minster was built by the order of one of the British chieftains. The present magnificent structure was completed in 1237, and so far as appearance is concerned, now stands almost as it left the builder's hands. It is without tower or spire of considerable height, and somewhat disappointing when viewed from the exterior. The interior is most imposing, and the great church is rich in historical associations. Here is buried Catherine of Aragon, the first queen of Henry VIII, and the body of the unfortunate Queen of Scots was brought here after her execution at Fotheringhay. 
King James I, when he came to the throne, removed his mother's remains to Westminster Abbey, where they now rest. Strangely enough, the builders of the cathedral did not take into consideration the yielding nature of the soil on which they reared the vast structure, and as a consequence, a few years ago the central tower of the building began to give way, and cracks appeared in the vaulting and walls. Something had to be done at once, and at the cost of more than half a million dollars, the tower was taken down from top to foundation, every stone being carefully marked to indicate its exact place in the walls. The foundations were carried eleven feet deeper until they rested upon solid rock, and then each stone was replaced in its original position. Restoration is so perfect that the ordinary beholder would never know the tower had been touched. This incident gives an idea of how the cathedrals are now cared for, and at what cost they are restored after ages of neglect and destruction. Peterborough was stripped of most of its images and carvings by Cromwell's soldiers, and its windows are modern and inferior. Our attention was attracted to three or four windows that looked much like the crazy quilt work that used to be in fashion. We were informed that these were made of fragments of glass that had been discovered and patched together without any effort at design, merely to preserve them and to show the rich tones and colourings of the original windows. The most individual feature of Peterborough is the three great arches on the west or entrance front. These rise nearly two-thirds the height of the frontage, and it is almost a hundred feet from the ground to the top of the pointed arches. The market square of Peterborough was one of the largest we had seen, another evidence of the agricultural importance of the town. Aside from the cathedral, there is not much of interest, but if one could linger, there is much worth seeing in the surrounding country. The village of Fotheringhay is only nine miles to the west. The melancholy connection of this little hamlet with the Queen of Scots brings many visitors to it every year, although there are few relics of Mary and her lengthy imprisonment now remaining. Here we came the next morning, after a short time on winding and rather hilly byways. It is an unimportant-looking place, this sleepy little village, where, three hundred years ago, Mary fell a victim to the machinations of her rival, Elizabeth. The most notable building now standing is the quaint inn, where the judges of the unfortunate queen made their headquarters during her farcial trial. Of the gloomy castle, where the fair prisoner languished for nineteen long years, nothing remains except a shapeless mass of grass-covered stone and traces of the old-time moat. Much of the stone was built into cottages of the surrounding country, and in some of the mansions of the neighbourhood may be found portions of the windows and a few of the ancient mantelpieces. The great oak staircase, which Mary descended on the day of her execution, is built into an old inn at Aundel, not far away. Thus the great fortress was scattered to the four winds, but there is something more enduring than stone and mortar. Its memories linger and will remain so long as the story of English history is told. King James, by the destruction of the castle, endeavoured to show fitting respect to the memory of his mother, and no doubt hoped to wipe out the recollection of his friendly relations with Queen Elizabeth after she had caused the death of Mary. The school-children of Fotheringhay seemed quite familiar with its history, and on the lookout for strangers who came to the place. Two or three of them quickly volunteered to conduct us to the site of the castle. There was nothing to see after we got there, but our small guides were thankful for the fee, which they no doubt had in mind from the first. Mournful and desolate indeed seemed the straggling little village, where three centuries ago a thousand witcheries lay felled at one stroke, one of the cruelest and most pitiful of the numberless tragedies which disfigure the history of England. From Fotheringhay we returned to the York Road and followed it northward for about twenty miles. We passed through Woolsthorpe, an unattractive little town, whose distinction is that it was the birthplace of Sir Isaac Newton. The thatched roof farmhouse where he was born is still standing on the outskirts of the village. At Grantham, a little further on, we stopped for lunch at the Royal and Angel Hotel, one of the most charming of the old-time inns. Like nearly all of these old hostelries, it has its tradition of a royal guest having offered shelter to King Charles I when on his endless wanderings during the Parliamentary Wars. 
It is a delightful old building, overgrown with ivy, and its diamond-paned lattice windows, set in walls of time-worn stone, give evidence to its claims to antiquity. We had paused in Grantham on our way to Belvoir Castle, about six miles away, the seat of the Duke of Rutland. This is one of the finest, as well as most strikingly situated, of the great baronial residences in England. Standing on a gently rising hill, its many towers and battlements looking over the forests surrounding it, this vast pile more nearly fulfilled our ideas of feudal magnificence than any other we saw. It is famous for its picture gallery, which contains many priceless originals by Gainsborough, Reynolds and others. It has always been open to visitors every weekday, but it chanced at the time that the old duke was dangerously ill, so ill in fact that his death occurred a little later on, and visitors were not admitted. We were able to take the car through the great park, which affords a splendid view of the exterior of the castle. Nearby is the village of Bottisford, whose remarkable church has been the burial place of the Manners family for five hundred years, and contains some of the most complete monumental effigies in England. These escaped the wrath of the Cromwellians, for the Earl of Manners was an adherent of the Protector. In the market square at Bottisford stand the old whipping-post and stocks, curious relics of the days when these instruments were a common means of satisfying justice, or what was then considered justice. They were made of solid oak timbers and had withstood the sun and rain of two or three hundred years without showing much sign of decay. Although the whipping-post and stocks used to be common things in English towns, we saw them preserved only at Bottisford. On leaving Bottisford, our car dashed through the clear waters of a little river which runs through the town and which no doubt gave it the name. We found several instances where no attempt had been made to bridge the streams, which were still forded as in primitive times. In a short time we reached Newark, where we planned to stop for the night, but it turned out otherwise. We paused at the hotel, which the guidebook honoured with the distinction of being the best in the town, and a courteous policeman of whom we inquired confirmed the statement. We were offered our choice of several dingy rooms, but a glance at the time-worn furnishings and unattractive beds convinced us that if this were Newark's best hotel, we did not care to spend the night in Newark. To the profound disgust of the landlady, nearly all hotels in England are managed by women, we took our car from the garage and sought more congenial quarters, leaving, I fear, anything but a pleasant impression behind us. We paused a few minutes at the castle, which is the principal object of antiquity in Newark. It often figured in early history, King John died here, the best thing he ever did, and it sustained many sieges until it was finally destroyed by the parliamentarians, pretty effectively destroyed, for there is little remaining except the walls fronting immediately on the river. Though it was quite late, we decided to go on to Nottingham, about twenty miles further, where we could be sure of good accommodation. It seemed easy to reach the city before dark, but one can hardly travel on schedule with a motor-car, at least so long as pneumatic tyres are used. An obstinate case of tyre trouble, just as we got outside of Newark, meant a delay of an hour or more, and it was after sunset before we were again started on our journey. There is a cathedral at Southwell, and as we permitted no cathedral to escape us, we paused there for a short time. It is a great country church of very unusual architecture, elevated to the head of a diocese in 1888. The town of Southwell is a retired place of evident antiquity, and will be remembered as having been the home of Lord Byron and his mother for some time during his youth. The route which we followed to Nottingham was well off the main highway, a succession of sharp turns and steep little hills that made us take rather long chances in our flight around some of the corners but luckily the way was clear and we came into Nottingham without mishap, though it became so dark that we were forced to light our lamps, a thing that was necessary only two or three times during our summer's tour. Our route south from Nottingham was over a splendid and nearly level road that passes through Leicester, one of the most up-to-date business towns in the kingdom. I do not remember any place outside of London where streets were more congested with all kinds of traffic. The town is of great antiquity, but its landmarks have been largely wiped out by the modern progress it has made. 
We did not pause here, but directed our way to Lutterworth, a few miles further, where the great reformer John Wycliffe made his home, the famous theologian who translated the Bible into English and printed it two hundred years before the time of Martin Luther. This act, together with his fearless preaching, brought him into great disfavour with the church, but owing to the protection of Edward III, who was especially friendly to him, he was able to complete his work in spite of fierce opposition. Strangely enough, considering the spirit of his time, Wycliffe withstood the efforts of his enemies, lived to a good old age, and died a natural death. Twenty years afterward, the Roman church again came into power, and the remains of the reformer were exhumed and burned in the public square of Lutterworth. To still further cover his memory with a blokey, the ashes were thrown into the clear, still little river that we crossed on leaving the town. But his enemies found it too late to overthrow the work he had begun. His church, a large, massive building with a great square top tower, stands today much as it did when he used to occupy the pulpit, which is the identical one from which he preached. A base relief in white marble by the American sculptor Story, commemorating the work of Wycliffe, has been placed in the church at a cost of more than $10,000, and just outside a tall granite obelisk has been erected in his honor. In cleaning the walls recently, it was discovered that under several coats of paint there were some remarkable frescoes, which, being slowly uncovered, were found to represent scenes in the life of the great preacher himself. Leaving Lutterworth, we planned to reach Cambridge for the night. On the way, we passed through Northampton, a city of 100,000 and a manufacturing place of importance. It is known in history as having been the seat of Parliament in the earlier days. A detour of a few miles from the main road leaving Northampton brought us to Olney, which for twenty years was the home of William Cowper. His house is still standing and has been turned into a museum of relics of the poet, such as rare editions of his books and original manuscripts. The town is a quiet, sleepy-looking place, situated among the Buckinghamshire hills. It is still known as a literary centre, and a number of more or less noted English authors live there at the present time. Bedford, only a few miles further on the Cambridge Road, was one of the best-appearing English towns of the size we had seen anywhere, with handsome residences and fine business buildings. It is more on the plan of American towns, for its buildings are not ranged along a single street, as is the rule in England. It is best known from its connection with the immortal dreamer John Bunyan, whose memory it now delights to honour. Far different was it in his lifetime, for he was confined for many years in Bedford Jail, and it was during this imprisonment that he wrote his Pilgrim's Progress. At Elstow, a mile from Bedford, we saw his cottage, a mean-looking little hut with only two rooms. The tenants were glad to admit visitors as probable customers for postcards and photographs. The bare monotony of the place was relieved not a little by the flowers which crowded closely around it. Cambridge is about twenty miles from Bedford, and we did not reach it until after dark. It was weekend holiday, and we found the main street packed with pedestrians, through whom we had to carefully thread our way for a considerable distance before we came to the University Arms. We found this hotel one of the most comfortable and best kept of those whose hospitality we enjoyed during our tour. Cambridge is distinctly a university town. One who has visited Oxford and gone the rounds will hardly care to make a like tour of Cambridge unless he is especially interested in English college affairs. It does not equal Oxford, either in importance of colleges or number of students. It is a beautiful place, lying on a river with long stretches of still water, where the students practice rowing and where the famous boat races are held. Cambridge is rich in traditions, as any university might be that numbered Oliver Cromwell among its students. 
Its present atmosphere and influences, as well as those of Oxford, are vastly different from those of the average American school of similar rank, nor do I think that the practical results attained are comparable to those of our own colleges. The Rhodes Scholarship, so eagerly sought after in America, is not, in my estimation, of the value that many are inclined to put upon it. Aside from the fact that caste relegates the winners almost to the level of charity students, and they told us in Oxford that this is literally true, it seems to me that the most serious result may be that the student is likely to get out of touch with American institutions and American ways of doing things. End of chapter 14